Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello? This is the Britflix Fryfest preview series 2019. The Britflix podcast comes absolutely free, so can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters, which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it and you're done. And it'd be really helpful. Trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the Britflix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type Britflix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time in your hands, why not reviewers as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast, Frightfest 2019 preview series. My name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is, and a returning guest I should add, is uh, Adam Egypt Mortimer. Hello Adam. Hey, how's it going? It's so nice to talk to you again. Indeed, indeed. It's been a while since some kind of hate was uh, was was on these shores, but now you're back with uh, a film called Daniel Isn't Real. Yeah, yeah, man. It uh, you know, I, I, it's it, it's interesting because I always associate the lot when I was in London last. It was for Fright Fest uh, for my first movie, and I have a very clear memory of getting on a Skype call with uh, Daniel Noah from. Vision, who Daniel isn't real, and we had our first notes call about the script really? for that movie while, like, the day uh, London to debut some kind of hate at Fright Fest. So that's all. Like, so, so, so the Fright Fest UK has this very specific sort of a uh, uh, part of my timeline when I think about the long process of getting this movie made. You're living in an infinity, aren't you? You're going. Right yeah, I know. I know. It's just a loop. It's. <laughs> It's like Groundhog's Day, except it gets kind of more ambitious each time. So, you know, I wake up every day and, and now now I've got a dolly, which is exciting, you know. <laughs> well, look, sir, um, before we go into any detail about that, do you want to give people uh, a brief synopsis as to what Daniel Isn't Real is all about? Absolutely. So Daniel Isn't Real is the story of a 19-year-old kid named Luke who... He's struggling in his life. He's he's struggling to interact with people. He's sort of recovering from childhood trauma, and uh, in the course of this, he he remanifests his childhood imaginary friend, 
who is named Daniel. And the, you know, the opening few minutes of the movie, we see them as children or as a child and imaginary child having their sort of childhood adventures and this terrible thing that kind of goes wrong. And then the, the body of the movie is about Luke and his imaginary friend trying to conquer the world or conquer the, you know, the small world of colleagues that, that Luke is living in. And at first things are very exciting and colorful. And then Daniel sort of tries to start taking over Luke's life and, and things get very dark. And it's based on a novel. Uh, it's based on a novel. The title is different. The, 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 the novel was called In This Way I Was Saved by Brian DeLue. And we wrote the script together. We adapted the, his novel together. And uh, the title, In This Way I Was Saved, very literary, totally terrible title for a movie. So the first... The first thing we ever did was change the title. <laughs> well, look, we'll get into more detail about that process in a moment. But first, uh, it's 20 years of Frightfest, and I'm asking all the guests who've come on Brickflix this year to give me a standout memory from when they were 20. So for you, when I, when I put that to you, what, what springs to the top of your head? It's funny, you know, I, I think about uh, shooting a movie, yeah. like a weird little short film that I was shooting when I was in college, and... It wasn't the first movie I ever made because I started making movies in high school. Mm-hmm. I actually did some some super eight work, but uh, but when I was twenty, uh, my friends and I collaborated on this kind of dramatic but gory uh, film about uh, uh, characters who were in a, a mental institution, and um, and it's it's sort of interesting. It's sort of connected to to my new movie because. Uh, my, I was working on this film with my best friend and he was going through some really intense sort of, uh, mental issues at the time that got worse and worse. And it was, uh, I sort of associate my first interaction with r- real crippling mental illness, uh, with what was going on when we were filming this movie where people were fictionally portraying, uh, the, the mentally ill, and then my friend really had this very intense sort of downward spiral that I, that I wound up having to be quite responsible for. Right. And uh, and that you know sort of that experience of being creative and also being um uh you know sort of losing control and 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 having to go into a very dark place that wound up being a, a huge influence on the way I handled the material for the new movie. So mm. that, that's interesting that, you, that to sort of connect that also specifically. Um, but yeah, that's what, that's what I was doing when, and there was this, uh, so there's a scene in that movie where uh, somebody gets their stomach ripped open and we decided to use chicken guts, actual chicken guts uh, as part of the effect. Must have smelled lovely. <laughs> Well, that's exactly what I remember about it. We boiled them mm-hmm. to make sure that they would be uh, sanitary, like, you know, that nobody would get sick when they interacted with them. And, like, our, we were boiling chicken guts for hours in our <laughs> in our dorm room, and the smell was just awful. And then, um, you know, soon after the shooting of this movie, when things started to go really badly for my friend, I always associated those terrible moments with boiling chicken it was just it was sort of a wretched <laughs> yeah it was, a, it was a wretched wretched moment 
Well, look, let's let's fast forward then to to Daniel as real. Now, the the novel was written two thousand nine, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think something something like uh, that's when it was published. Published, yeah, sorry, yeah, published, um, sorry. Um, but so so there's a there's a there's, yeah, a, there's, yeah. A, there's a period, and obviously you and Brian working together. So what was what was the the sort of spark between you to think let's 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 have a go at let's let's adapt this for the screen? Where did the, where did that conversation? How did that conversation start between you? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I um I met Brian in. 2011 mm-hmm. we were at a uh, we were at a party a, a mutual friend of ours in Los Angeles had I think maybe a birthday party or big dinner party or something and uh and I met him there and just just hit it off the way you meet somebody at a party and you're like this guy's cool I like this person uh, mm. and at the time I was I had not made a feature yet I was doing music videos and trying to figure out how to make a feature and so a lot of what I was doing at that time was reading novels and other things and looking for source material, looking for something I could adapt into a movie. And so and he was, he was very cool and we hit it off and he told me he had just moved to Los Angeles from New York and that he had published a novel. So that same weekend I got a copy of the novel and I read it and I loved it. I called him up on, you know, probably Tuesday after having met him and said, I really love your novel. I want to, try to figure out how to turn it in. Would you be interested in letting me have the rights? And he said, yeah, that sounds cool, but I just moved to Los Angeles and I want to learn about screenwriting too. So what if we work on it together? Wow. That sounded like (laughs) totally (laughs) sounded reasonable at the time to me. And um, so I, I started uh, working with him like right away on it. And, and you know, he, so Brian is like, uh, he grew up in Manhattan uh, which is where the novel takes place. In our movie, we moved it to to Brooklyn, but in the in the novel, it was Manhattan. So he grew up, sort of, you know, in similar situations as as the characters. And he had gone to Princeton, and he had gotten a an MFA in uh, uh, in novel writing from the New School. So he was like very well educated, like kind of a fancy, you know, smart, fancy kind of guy. Hmm. But um. But I, I noticed, you know, when I started going over to his, his apartment to work on project, he was always wearing like uh, vintage Iron Maiden or Slayer T-shirts. Right. And so, you know, sort of that, uh, you know, that mix of like sort of fancy and literary and also Slayer fan uh, really appealed to me, uh, who is a diehard Slayer fan as well. And um, and so I so there was just a good there was a good chemistry with us. <clears throat> and so. We started working on adapting his novel, and what happened was once we got to a to one version, sort of our first iteration of a kind of polished version of it, uh, I sort of looked at that script and said, "Man, you know, like this script is awesome, and I, I love what we've written. This movie seems very cool, but I have to admit to you that I don't think there's any way I'm going to be able to get." the financing we need to make this movie because as like a first time director and we're writing this thing that's like pretty ambitious and pretty weird and like, sorry, I tricked you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was like, but you know what I do think we should do because we're having such a good time writing together and, and, and we need a deeper strategy here is let's write another movie that we could do for like nothing so that we can prove 
our filmmaking skills and then we can make Daniel. And so he agreed to that also. And that was where some kind of hate came from. Right. So then we wrote some kind of hate and it did not, did not happen overnight that just because we wrote something very low budget, we could immediately make it. So then that became a whole journey and a whole struggle to make that movie. Yeah. But we did it. And then what happened? And then, you know, this, it's, it's always it's so beautiful when a plan works, even if it takes forever. But, um, that movie played at a festival in the U.S. called the Stanley Festival, which is now morphed into the Overlook Festival. And the guys from Spectre Vision were there at that festival premiering one of their movies. And they saw some kind of hate. And they met with me and said, we really liked your movie. What else do you have? And I showed them Daniel. And they decided to come on board with that. And then just like that, in the blink of an eye, in the blink of... Four years of an eye, an eye blinking in such slow motion, it takes four years to close. Uh, we got the new movie made. So, so you're talking about a four year overnight sensation? That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the over, I mean, from, you know, from the moment that I started talking to Brian until the moment that the movie uh, Daniel Isn't Real premiered at South by Southwest, it, was, it took seven and a half years. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. And, you know, I have to say, and, th and this is something that's very important to hear, and, and, and is that during the course of that time, during that seven years, like, it felt kind of horrific, right? I was very stressed out. You, you know, you have the, uh, am I ever going to make another movie? Is this ever going to get made? Like, you spend all this time on this thing, and it's never going to happen. And, like, all of that anxiety... But then once it actually happens, all, all of that time was okay. All of that time was like, oh, that's just how long it takes. And it's probably better now than it would have been if we'd done it in two years. And, and it's all cool. And it kind of makes you go, go back in your mind and say, you know, we should, we should try to strive to be less anxious during the time that it takes for the time well, it's, it's, a, it's a constant it, – it's, it, it's a constant – Faustian deal, isn't it? Well, it's just one Faustian deal after another, in a way, with, <laughs> yeah. with, your, with your own headspace. Because you're right, the logic side of you goes, well, all the people I know, it took them five, seven, eight, four years to get their projects off the ground. But when you start anything, there's, there's that, little, that little gremlin that goes, well, this one will be the exception. You're going to piss it in two years. Yeah. It'll, all, it'll <laughs> all be done. You'll be premiering at Cannes and everyone will be talking about you. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's something I think that's kind of quasi unhealthy but also a healthy part of m making something like Daniel Isn't Real get to the finishing line because without that little sense of delusion as part of the process to keep you going it, it would never have got made would it in a way it's like your, your determination and belief in it is what got it as far as anything else as, as much as money got it made and resources got it made a kind of steely determination is as important as being creative, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. And it, and you really do, it, it, you do have to be delusional, right? Mm. To like, to write down in words some crazy idea and then expect that that's going to become something that other people will put tons of money into. <laughs> so, totally, yeah. And other, and other people will see, like, you have to be quite delusional. And, um, but you have to also... I guess this is the thing I'm recognizing now is you have to really manage that delusion so that your setbacks don't become these huge blows 
to your ego or these sort of like life-changing catastrophes, the setbacks are just part of what you're overcoming. Yeah, you know? no, so, totally, yeah. You know, yeah. So, so when, you, when, you were, when you were at that stage of picking the book apart and Brian's sort of at the same time learning screenwriting with you as kind of like his mentor and you're, you're trying to get your first movie made. So it's kind of like there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of sort of natural enthusiasm as well as sort of competence going on all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So what were the challenges of because having seen the film and obviously there's a lot there's a lot in there about obviously when we're talking about imaginary friends and we're talking about what goes on in people's heads now imagine in the book that's easy to do because a, a character can go I'm thinking this I'm confused about that I'm angry about this and the character can tell us can't they how they feel whereas obviously a character on a film can't look down the lens of the camera and go this is the bit where I'm a bit pissed off, so just bear with me. <laughs> you know, you have yeah. to you have to deliver that emotion in in a sequence of actions that make us understand that a character's this, that, or the other. So, what were some of the major challenges of translating what is a novel into the film for you? Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, the first the first step of that was that, interestingly, in the novel, the whole novel is told from Daniel's point of view. So the imaginary friend himself oh, wow. has, has is narrating it, and um, so that's that's wild, and it's and it's really interesting, you know, when you read the book, to and you're really getting his voice and his personality the whole time, and he has this kind of uh, disdain in a way mm. for um, for for things that are not imaginary, and he's got there's a he's got a little bit of a different kind of personality than we wound up with in the movie, where he sort of hates physical things because he's imaginary and like when Luke eats food, like he thinks it's kind of gross, but the whole story, the whole novel is his point of view. And, you know, also being a novel, it can sort of unfold in epic time a little bit differently than the movie can. So I think there's probably like a hundred pages where they're little kids where they're, they're six years old. And in the movie, that whole six year old bit is probably about five minutes. It is. Um, Yes. Yes. You know, but in the in the book, it's a hundred pages, and then there's a whole middle section where he's in high school, and then finally the bit where he's in college, which is what the whole movie is. Mm. And and so you know, so you're adjusting. I, I think the, the 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 adjustment of point of view was the probably the first big change <clears throat> we had. At, you know, in the sense, obviously, it, I mean, some movies are narrated, but th- this movie's not narrated at all. Mm. But it is a hundred percent from Luke's. Yeah, no, I was going to say, is that, you've already surprised me. So the book is from Daniel's point of view. Yeah. But the film yeah. is clear. It's clearly Luke's movie. Yeah. And it, and, it, and it really had to be, for the film, it really had to be about, you know, choosing this, uh, this vulnerable, you know, sort of interesting, psychologically complex character and staying with him the whole time and being with him uh, so that when we see things that are, is this real? Is this not real? What are we really seeing? Um, am I having a, a nervous breakdown? Is something else happening? You know, I think sticking very, very closely to Luke's subjectivity was crucial. Mm. And, and, and as I started to think about the idea of how the movie works aesthetically, <clears throat> I would think a lot about subjectivity and, and what does it mean to see something that's objective reality and what does it mean to use an aesthetic that's very subjective? And that became, you know, those kind of questions became an important guideline, but not so much when we were writing it, when we were writing it, 
we were very, we were focused entirely on what's the structure, you know, what's, what's the story, what are the things we, we want to see. And then later I, 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 I guess what I do is I reapproach the the script as a director as if I didn't write it, hmm. and then try to interpret what's happening in the script and how best to film it. But how? But, but given that Brian wrote the novel, <coughs> how bumpy a ride was it for the Perrier to be deconstructing what is his work that he's authored to make it into this new thing that is the film you've co-authored? You know, he was he was actually pretty flexible about it. Um, hmm. You know, by the, by the time. I think he, you know, first first of all, probably our first step was we outlined a movie that had a lot of faithfulness to the novel in terms of structurally what happened. You know, I think there was a there was a version of the script where we, where we had twenty six pages with the little kids, for right. example, okay. right? Okay. And um, and at a certain point, we would say, uh, it just doesn't in a movie like there. The, because in a novel, they're the same characters, right? In a novel, you talk about a six-year-old, you talk about the same person 12 years later, and in your mind, it's the same character. But in a movie, they're different actors, and you start to really lose a sense of following the same character. And, you know, we didn't want this to be so experimental that the first third were little kids, and then suddenly there's these yeah. adults we're supposed to care about. So, but, you know, I think, but Brian was very, um, you know, very sort of... Uh, the first time we started working on it, he had bought like a, a cork board and he had divided it up into the four columns. And he was like, OK, so we need like act breaks and mid midpoints. And, you know, he kind of like had really embraced that sort of, you know, screenplay 101 structural stuff oh, yeah. to, get, to get us going. And it's funny because I think in a way, like we really abandoned that. <clears throat> we abandoned that at some point along the way of writing this and abandoned it more generally we've we've now written four movies together and we haven't seen a cork board for seven years <laughs> but uh but you know at, at the time and i was kind of flexible with that i was like well you know he wrote the novel and he's a really accomplished writer and he wants to go down this like you know structure path like let's see where this leads hmm. and he was very uh very flexible in terms of starting to make adjustments so i think probably our very very first outline was as close to the events of the novel as, you know, as, as could be. Mm. But then as we started making changes, it went in all kinds of different directions. And, and, you know, I think that the, there's something in the book that's a little bit more ambiguous, you know, it's very, uh, very influenced by turn of the screw. And, oh, okay, um, okay, okay. This sort of like, is, is this one thing happening or is this other thing happening? And, and for the movie, <clears throat> I just, we both felt like, let's be really definitive about what it's about. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, sort of structure it based around revelations accordingly. Uh, <clears throat> so, so yeah, he was, I, I, I never felt like he was precious about the book. Like I was always willing to forget about the book, sort of like once we had an initial outline that had tons of things from the book, I didn't ever feel like I needed to go back to the novel again. Um, you, you know, I felt like we're, we'll, evolve this living document of what happens in the movie. And I think sometimes he would go back to the book and say, well, you know, in the book, there was this thing and that thing. And, but, uh, but he was very flexible about it. And I think he, he lives in the world of 
saying, well, I wrote my novel and it's out there in the world and it's definitive and I love it and the movie will be something different. Mm. So that was, you know, I think that made it really helpful <clears throat> for me, you know, to, because you only can be serving the master of what's the awesome movie and it becomes very difficult to make the awesome movie but also preserve some sort of arbitrary pre-existing document. Yeah, you can't you can't drag the book, book along, can you? It has to it right. has to serve yeah. as fuel for the film but not 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 yeah. not, not not a weight on it. Yeah. And it, you know, interestingly once we got all the way to the to the time of making the movie, a lot of people in the crew were interested in reading the novel because they were mm. sort of curious you know, what it was and what it said. And I didn't have any problem with that. I think, mm. you know, as, as, as much as you can get immersed in something is great, but I also, but I didn't highly recommend it. And I didn't really recommend it, especially to the actors. Cause I, you know, wouldn't w want something that was sort of, well, that's actually a different character. And now you're mixing up these, you know, realities. Mm. Um, but you know, in the novel, there's so much more backstory about the, uh, the mother and her mother and, you know, family history and, of course, you know, it's a novel, so all these things get very, very deep and complex, but also totally different relationships. You know, that in the in the novel, his father's in and out of it, and he's he's got a, a stepsister, and, you know, it's all this complicated stuff, and we just started throwing things in, in the trash and, and making yeah. it our own for the movie. Now, it is, obviously, imagine if, imagine if Friends, but also a kind of descent into what is sort of, Luke's new reality, as his, as his imaginary friend, begins to have a greater influence on in his life than just simply being there for shits and giggles. Um, uh -huh. um, what, uh, which lends itself to then some sort of key sort of horror moments like disassociation and stuff. And sort of, I'm, I'm always curious with that kind of stuff. Is how the hell do you keep track of that on the page? Because obviously. A, a moment of disassociation or even a sequence disassociation where you return back to a normal or maybe the normal is unreliable and maybe we're not mm. in the normal. It's sort of, it, it's, 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 I think it's one of the hardest things to communicate in, in, in screenplays because on, on the screen it's bleeding obvious because the, the lights change and the rooms change <laughs> and what people mm. wearing changes. So the coders are there, aren't they? But when you're writing it down, it ain't so bloody simple, is it? Well, it's funny. I actually felt like it was the the opposite problem, in it for me, really? which was that yeah, in, in that in the script form, mm. you know, it'll say, and then you know, and then Daniel leans over and says something to Luke, and Luke laughs, and then he says this to a person who's in the room, and that person, you know, and like uh, on the page, you can sort of follow that. Mm. Well, there's this imaginary friend, and Luke can see him, and the audience can see him. And he's talking, but other people can't hear him. And we just sort of accept that. <clears throat> and that felt very easy to write. We were like, it's about these two characters. One of them happens to not exist, but whatever. Hmm. But we wrote it very literally in the sense of, Dan you know, we wrote it like, well, Daniel is a character in the script and he does things and says things. Hmm. And then it was, it was only when it was time to, like, figure out how to shoot it. What, that I feel the kind of stress you're describing, which was then I said, oh, wait a minute, is if I have a shot of three people standing in the room and we're supposed to believe that one of them isn't there, how is the audience going to relate to that? Like, because now we're concretely looking at something on the screen as opposed to on the page, 
we're all we all know, oh, he's imaginary, whatever, I get it. But suddenly it's like, well, now there's an actual actor and he's standing there. How is that going to work? And I really and I really had to think through how perception would work filmically in a way that was not an issue on the page. Yeah, yeah, because I guess you've got you've got Luke's point of view, which is obviously he can see the imaginary friend. And then you might have, say, the mum's point of view in the same scene, which is there is no imaginary friend. Yeah, and you have to be careful. You know, you don't want it to be something where it's like every other shot, the actor's in, the actor's not in. You know, mm. you know which. What do we even mean? What whose point of view is a certain shot from? What does that even mean? You know, sort of making these decisions because there's got it. You know, it's really interesting to me to have. I didn't. I didn't fully know that it was going to work at all until I started doing auditions for the movie. Okay. And that was that was the first time when it was like, oh, okay, now I have three people standing up and talking uh, in a scene that objectively is just two people. But now I'm seeing three people, and one of them is like yelling into Luke's ear while he's trying to talk to somebody. And and I, and and when I sort of blocked it out with actors. I realized, oh, this is actually super cool, and it's mm. going to work. And now, now I just have to figure out a consistent logic for shooting it, so that the audience won't feel like it's sort of willy nilly, you know, random. Mm. But the actual the event of like having these actors all at once is going to work, and it's going to make it very energetic and cool. And I got very excited about that. But that had been a concern, and remained a concern. I mean, you know, I the amount of energy that I spent on like we can shoot Daniel this way but not this way and the perception this you know blah 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 like mm. just endless amount of uh, thinking about that but that never entered into the conversation um when we were writing it when we were writing it I think we just said okay we're writing it he's a character just like he is a book and <clears throat> creatively it was always important to us that and it's it's highly described like this in the in the novel which is that whenever Daniel does like physical thing. We, we didn't want, he's not like a sort of a ghost. He doesn't kind of just like phase through things and kind of a wisp away. You know, he's like, has this very physical form of, of transforming or, you know, how he gets from one place to the other, that kind of thing. And that was mm. that in the novel, that was very intensely described in a lot of places. And in the movie that leads to some, some situations and some imagery that people, tend to describe as being body horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very yeah, much, and, and, yeah, very much yeah. so. Um, now, in, in terms of this, this it, it grows and evolves into, into areas that we traditionally associate with mental illness, but it also delves into areas of the supernatural as well, and it kind of bounces off those two, those two mm. reasonings as, as to what the hell's going on. And it was there, that's where I, I felt like that's, that's the the hard part in terms of trying to trying to nail it down on the page and then get it on on the screen and 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 I was saying to you before we started recording one of the things that struck me was this it, it appears to me that something like Jacob's Ladder would be a would be an influence on this film. Yeah, J Jacob's Ladder was a huge influence on, on on this movie. It's a huge influence on me. It's a huge influence on my way of thinking. And and one of the things that I what I love the most about Jacob's Ladder. Uh, I mean, just aside from how aesthetically perfect it is, but what I love about that movie is that I feel like it captures the feeling of a traumatic moment mm. so so perfectly. 
you know, um, it, you know, th- th- this this idea like if something terrible happens to you in your in your life, you might sometimes wake up and look around you and go, "Is this re- is this my life? Like, is this it? Like, is this really what's happening? Like, who are these people?" And and that happens so beautifully in in uh, in Jacob's Ladder. And you know, I remember talking to a friend of mine recently. Well, I you know, I guess two years ago, right after the election, the United States presidential election of 2016, um, when we were all a bit traumatized by what had just happened. And I, I was talking to a friend of mine and I mentioned Jacob's Ladder to her and she said, oh, my. Yes, I think about Jacob's Ladder all the time. This is just like Jacob's Ladder. And it's you know, I think you can apply. Obviously, you know, that movie, the characters very specifically, it has to do with his Vietnam, post-traumatic stress, and then his issues about being dead or alive and mm. death in the underworld. But I think that feeling of trauma, you know, depicted with demons and disorienting situations and horror is so uh, identifiable for for anybody. Well, just, know, I mean, ever a, experienced something like that. I was going to say, in a very mild sense, you know, disassociation happens to us driving a bloody car, doesn't it? You could absolutely. You could yeah. hold on a minute. Am I? Oh, I'm in the back of the room again, and and it's dangerous to think you don't know where the last two minutes have been. So if you add into that mix, you don't know where the last two minutes have been, and you're seeing maybe a demonic figure. That's yes, brilliant horror, then, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's like, look, my whole goal with horror is to find these feelings that are relatable to all of us. Like you say, like it's as simple as you can be driving. And suddenly be like, oh, fuck, what's happening? Something so simple as that. And I want to take those relatable feelings and then turn it into something that's really visually and immersively monstrous Mm. so that you see it up on a screen and it just feels big and huge and terrifying. But then you can reflect on it later and be like, oh, that really represents like a little bit of what I feel like. Like I walk into a party and I feel a little bit alienated from everyone around me and it makes me feel anxious and I start sweating and, you know, when I when I want to represent that feeling, then it's there's fucking demons and screaming and strobe lights and it's horrible. Mm. But I think we all we can all go like, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. Now, there's a specific specific little motif you use. I think you use it maybe three times, which really resonated with, with I guess, what cemented my feelings about 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 Jacob's letter is is your use of the kind of speeding um, subway train as almost like a kind mm. of cutting device for you to take us mm-hmm. to move us fast to somewhere else, but also give us something to to shake us out of ourselves before you then give us the next image. Yeah, and you know I worked with my editor Brett Brett Bachman, who also edited Mandy, and uh, and also the upcoming Color Out of Space. He's like an amazing editor. Really mm. understands this this world of sort of you know. Is, is sort of quasi psychedelic, you know, psychological vision horror, mm. you know, yeah, yeah, uh, he yeah, really yeah. understands it. And, and so he, um, he loved all of the subway footage that, that I was able to get and, um, you know, shooting a movie that's set in New York subway is so crucial. And, you know, I lived in New York for, for a long, long time. And it's, you just spend all of your time waiting for subways or on subways. And at one point, actually, when I lived in New York, I, I did the thing, at like, you know, four in the morning coming out of a bar where I jumped down onto the tracks and said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to walk to the next station along the tracks. Really? Which was, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I was walking, me and my friend, we both started doing, we were walking down the the tracks and sort of got, 
because a lot of the times you can sort of see the next station. They're not that far away from each other, just a few blocks, really. Um, so conceivably, you could do this. But we started walking. And after walking for a while, I was like, where is the station? And then we realized we were in Brooklyn walking back to Manhattan. So the next station wasn't for miles. And we were just deep, deep. And then the train started coming ah! the other direction to our station. And, uh, and so at first I started running as fast as, I mean, it was really some horrific shit. Yeah. I was running towards, towards the oncoming train to try to get to the station before it headed out. And I'm running on the tracks and I fell down and like ripped my jeans and like smeared like, you know, awful black New York subway filth all over me and then got up and started running again. But now the train was leaving the station and I found one of those little alcoves, like, you know, you were, you, you, were in a, you were in a mini movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was insane. And I got into the into a little alcove that's just enough for a human being to step into. Yeah. So that the tra- and then the train came rushing past me. And with the lights and the noise and the, you know, and, and it's just like the shrieking metal and I could see the people in the window. And uh and then I, and I, and I really felt like I was having like a very elevated sort of interaction with the cosmos type. Mm moment because it's so because your body is so like adrenalized and thinks you're going to die and you're in survival mode but then the the visuals of it were so sort of heightened and bright and clear so it was really kind of like a mind pressing moment and uh and then the train went by and then I walked to the station and and our third friend mm. was just sitting there like I can't believe you guys made me miss the train you know <laughs> <And> like <laughs> back to the mundane reality <laughs> yeah, you've just faked you've just faced death up, and yeah, yeah. And, and then mundanity says, "What? What? What? we have got to wait for the next yeah. train." <laughs> yeah, now it's going to be another thirty minutes, <laughs> asshole. Now, a, a kind of, um, I thought an interesting aspect of it, sort of it, in and amongst the kind of mental health side of it, was Luke's relationship with Doctor Canelis Braun. Uh, yeah, and uh, Chuck Woody. Would you? Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, 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 yeah. I Takudi. thought he was—he was a fairly, you know, a, a, like a a really interesting portrayal of that role. Obviously, we've seen therapists in a million movies and TV shows, but he, mm-hmm. but, but he was zinging with something that I hadn't seen before, and obviously that. I'm really off. glad you felt that. Yeah, I'm and really that, glad you, that you that, felt that way about him. And would I won't? And that pays off later properly, like. But in the beginning. Sure. You're kind of unsettled by him as much as you can see. He's helping Luke. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, he is definitely a guy who has, uh, you know, sort of non-orthodox ideas about how you deal with a situation like mm. this. And, you know, and in the in the text, in the original, first of all, he's that's that character is not in the novel at all. Okay, so that was, okay. that's see? a good example of something that is completely an invention for the for the movie, I'm glad, I'm glad I picked um, up on him. Yeah, and um, and then on paper he was. I mean, he does and says all the same kind of things, but I, but I think it was really in developing the character with Chuck that we found certain aspects of him that were exciting, and you know, sort of like like in the in the in the script, he has this line about Lou Reed that I think is is quite funny, and you know, you sort of establish him as this. You know, he's kind of cool. He's into music. He's into interesting ideas. Um, but in working it out with Chuck, we kind of talked about this backstory of how he might have 
traveled the world and he's like sort of gathering different kinds of input beyond just, you know, sort of Western psychiatric medicine. And, and that he has this experience from when he was in Tibet and learning about Tibetan Buddhism and, um, you know, the, the way that they deal with certain kinds of things. And so we really like put together this character, which, you know, hopefully, I, I think as you're saying, like translate, you know, you, you have these scenes with him and you sort of feel like, oh, there's something going on with him. What's going on? Yeah, it's, kind of, it's, that, it's, it's, it's a weird contradiction of your, you can see Luke, Luke's getting comfort from what he's been able to talk through. But, but me as an audience are not satisfied and comfortable as much. So there's like mm-hmm. a, a little bit of contradiction. There's like, there's even sort of like a, like, like, a minor drama that I'm not even seeing, and I might even project. I might even be projecting, but that's still just as valid as as, as anything else. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think you know that first scene where he meets him. There's, you know, it's this this ballet that's not totally in the text of whether or not they're going to trust each other. Mm. Is is Doctor Braun interested enough or empathetic enough with Luke to sort of engage with him, and is Luke? willing to trust this guy to help him. And, you know, there are things that Luke says to him that are, that are truthful and he's kind of opening, but also we see him lie, like right off the bat, he says something that's a lie and, you know, going in and lying to the person who's trying to help fix your mind is always going to create a lot of issues down the line. And that's yeah. certainly something that, you know, a small little thing that sort of unfolds. Yeah. And there's, and there's, there's a, there's a, there's a line, there's a line of noted down that sort of, it resonates them throughout the film because it's like because you know at this point what, what what position Luke's in. So when the therapist says to him, "Don't don't be afraid of your imagination," it's kind of yes. it's kind of like he fucking should be afraid of his imagination. It's driving him bloody mad. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, and I I certainly you know I don't want to be the guy whose movie is about be afraid of your imagination, and that mm. you know that's that's definitely not what I think. But in this case, there's something beyond imagination. Mm. Of course, yeah, no, yeah, you go, you, you get there. But what I'm saying, but for th- obviously, the therapist is working with the the truth that Luke's wanted yeah. to share with him. So the the advice is valid, but we know what he's lying about, and we know what's what's Absolutely. happened. Absolutely. Um, so I yeah, think, yeah. For the for the for the doctor, he's seeing a kid who is repressed and ashamed by his own innermost thoughts. Mm. And the and the doctor is trying to say, like, don't be ashamed, like, be be your thoughts like be you know it's okay to be you and think the things you think and you know stop stop fighting yourself but of course the whole movie is an externalization of what it means to fight yourself now i mean we 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 live in we live in very sort of woke times um in in terms of how we consume our media was there any mm. was there any tensions or pressures pulling this film together in terms of what you may or may not be saying to do with disassociative disorders or mental health. I mean, obviously, the film goes into a sort of supernatural realm at points, but, but certainly there's enough of the film that, that you could put down as being, like, real drama. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing that was the most important to me was to portray the, the feelings of, you know, these sort of mental issues in a way that would be truthful and recognisable. Mm. And so, you know, and so a big influence on this uh you know like i was touching on earlier was when i went through my friend's uh manic breakdown mm. <clears throat> when when we were the same age as these characters uh 
the, you know, and sort of I wound up having to take him to the mental hospital. And I had to do that, you know, several times throughout over the course of several years. Right. And 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 really noticing looking back on it as a wiser, older person, looking back on how when you're that age, so you know, so many people are vulnerable to having like the first manifestations of of these kind of mental issues and they are surrounded by people who don't understand them or don't or can't recognize because so yeah. you know it's like you're 19 years old and you're in college every single one of you is an asshole who's who's experimenting with your identity and dressing crazy and doing crazy things and talking crazy stuff and making weird art you know every single one of you so when one of you is suddenly having a manic episode or teetering on the edge of schizophrenia or some of these things it's very hard to tell that because mm. you because you're like oh you just you decided to wear that crazy thing today. You know what I mean? Whereas more, you know, more mature people would can tell the difference. And and you get caught up with somebody, you know, you 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 hang out with somebody who's in a manic episode when you don't know how to recognize it. Hmm. And you you are also running down streets at four in the morning wearing clown makeup and lighting things on fire and you know, and you think it's just exciting. But you, then you're becoming exhausted and depleted and they're you know, spiraling into this manic thing that, again, you don't, you don't recognize. And so that <clears throat> sort of structure of what that's like to be around it, to witness it, to experience it, uh, to be caught up in it was the most important thing. Like, I, I, I felt like I need to represent in this movie, in the forms of this movie, like this thing that I have this experience with. And then other people will see it and be empathetic and recognize it. And that will give them comfort. Like that was what my relationship was to, to the responsibility mm. of it. And, you know, and since screening the movie, every time I screen the movie, there is always somebody that comes up to me and says, I had, I was in a situation like this, like I've struggled with this kind of things. And, I've, and this movie portrays those feelings beautifully. Thank you. Right. There are all, there's always somebody that says that mm. and that's who, who I make made the movie for. And that's who I tend to make anything for is so Antonin Artaud said this thing uh art is there to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable <laughs> which I, I I love that and and I've always I've always sort of appreciated I, I'm always sort of like well fuck the comfortable I'm just here to <laughs> I'm just the disturbed are my people and mm. let's let's rock you know um and I think can I so say I was going to say because yeah. I think what you 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 use two 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 polarities to sort of situate Luke's character with uh, Sophie and Casey. They they beautifully. I mean, and you know, I, I've not thought about it because, like I said, I've not long since finished watching your film. But yeah, that simple aspect of we go to college, you meet a load of new people, and then when some of them re reveal themselves to suddenly at three o'clock in the morning to be a psych, you know, a bit of a psycho dickhead, which is not a complete mental illness thing, but just they're right. off the wall, and now they're revealing it because when you first met them, you were meeting that nice side of them. And then when they've mm -hmm. had a couple of Jack mm -hmm. Daniels, you're like, I don't want to hang out with them anymore. And you spend the rest of the term trying to lose them. Uh, and I think that's that's a very real thing, and that's that's very recognisable in your film. But then then there's the much bigger thing, and then you see how relationships with more responsible people, like Casey's just got such a, a lovely view of the world, even though she's not she's not sensitive and and fey, she's very she's very aware. 
But it's, but yeah. it's, it comes from the point of view of wanting to understand, which I think is great because she's, she's the artist, she's the painter, and obviously artists are trying to understand what's going on in their head. That's why work comes out of them, in a sense. So it was nice that she became that, had that kind of role in the story. Yeah, and it was really it was really fun to be able to contrast to take Luke and Daniel and then contrast them in their relationship with two different women who mm. you know um, you know so Sasha Lane plays uh, Cassie and Hannah Marks plays Sophie and and I love both of these actresses and they uh, you know I think those are two characters who are on very different sort of dots on the timeline of emotional intelligence mm. you know and. Um, and so, yeah, so it plays out very differently. And, and, and I think, you know, one of them takes Luke into this journey, like deep into the underground and one of them sort of elevates him and they're jumping around on top of buses and looking at the sky, you know, there's this real difference between the two of them. And, um, but yeah, I, I, I think you're right that, that Cassie, the artist, like she's really struggling to understand. She knows that something is up. Mm. It's not just, it's not just fun. It's, it, but, but, um, but she comes back to empathy around, and and that's really the thing that I was searching for the whole movie is is locating empathy in in any of this. So mm. if if we're talking about mental illness or if we're talking about our own personal struggles, it's you know how can we be empathetic to what's going on? Yeah, no, totally. There's a we, yeah, for, for what is obviously a, a story that moves forward at a pace. There is there is lots of breathing time. For us to listen to mm. the issues of what it's like, what it sounds like, and what it feels like to be, you know, losing your mind in the way that Luke is. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, looking, looking, there's, there's, you, you mentioned body horror already, and there's some there's some wonderful visual treats that people are going to see um, to do, the, to do with interactions between, certainly between sort of Luke and Daniel um, as as the film progresses, and we begin to sort of mine into what's what's maybe going on and how do we how can we if ever resolve back to normal in inverted commas um what 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 was the was the provenance of the kind of supernatural element of it all part of the novel or was that something that came out in in the film and then how did how did you sort of because i think I, I don't I don't feel like I was told anything. I felt like I had to work it all out myself all the way through the film. Right. And it was a lovely yeah. and it was a lovely experience to to feel that I was able to pick the pieces of jigsaw up and then make sense of it. And obviously that that that, that thing that happens when you when you're engaged in a film where you're like gutted and you you're overjoyed and then you're like, Oh, we're getting and then no and yeah and and it was it was and, and it's very it, on the on the on the face of it, it's all very complicated. But actually I felt you 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 managed to keep it down to it's fucking scary. Just deal with the scary. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're kind of living in, in the moment on yeah, it. I think yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, my ideal in making a movie is something that is in the, the experience of it is anxiety and elation and excitement and all that. And then you can go back later and think about it. Maybe watch it the second time. Cause it's very dense, right? It's mm. dense with symbolism. It's dense with events. It's dense with, one moment, you know, sort of echoing from another moment way earlier. And, but yeah, but hopefully in the experience of it is not cerebral. The experience is, is visceral, but then, you know, maybe see it a, a second time and dig through it. The, the book toys with supernatural ideas, but it did not have the sense of cosmic 
horror mm. that I that, that I think is is really prevalent in the um, you know I'll tell you I mean you know not going too deep into it for spoilers the very first shot of the movie is of um, this kind of cosmic void mm. uh, I, th- I think that's how we described it in the script and um, and then that imagery permeates throughout the story and sort of become you know we sort of understand something about it later uh and 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 to me the idea of being able to move from the deeply personal story of trauma of a of a young man's trauma and his relationship with his mother and to take that into the very very cosmic hp lovecraft you know black Mm. holes in the cosmos that are affecting our reality you know I feel like that, that to me, that's like a really genuine depiction of my thoughts about the world, you know, starting no, no, I think emotional I'm, anxiety and going into space. I'm reading a book at the moment by a writer called Mark Fisher called The Weird and the Eerie. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's an analysis of horror writing. And the first chapter is Lovecraft. The second chapter yeah. is H.G. Wells. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's, it's it's the idea, of, and 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 I know, and again, there's parallels there with your film because it's he talks a lot about how Lovecraft tells a story from the person's point of view who's getting the horrible experience or the mm. where the outside is in our world, and that's something mm. that you do that the film does really well. Is it, it? It isn't. It isn't about the character exploring and finding in a way. It's it's the character being confronted with what's outside. You know, mm. suddenly mm-hmm. the world as we know it isn't how we know it, and I guess, I guess, in some senses, there's there's maybe even thinking think of cinematic references. Um, you've got films like Hellraiser. You know, you've, you've yeah, oh, you've, absolutely, you, yeah. You, you, you're touching in, in, into into those kind of worlds, and I think that, and I, I, I've not heard the idea of cosmic uh, horror before, and I, and I think it sums up a lot. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it makes me it makes me really it makes me see see what you were doing with your film. Uh, a lot, a lot more straightforward in a sense because it, because I think would you say would you say the, in a in a in a in a weird way your film deals with karma in some sense as much as anything else. Oh fuck yeah, absolutely no the 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 reason that I hired the cinematographer I hired Lyle, mm. Lyle Vincent who who had also done Girl Box Home Alone at Night he had done Bad Back she had done Thoroughbreds he's an awesome cinematographer I talked to. Probably I interviewed 30, 35 people on my way to make this movie. Okay, and okay. what I loved about Lyle when I met him and spoke to him was I was saying to him, you know, there's a there's a kind of Buddhist sense that I have in this movie. And that's where that, you know, this cosmic element to me and these references to the Tibetan prayer tools and things like that. And, and Lyle said, oh, yeah, man, like I'm a Buddhist. I lived in China for like <laughs> several years. He spe- he speaks Chinese. Wow. He lived in Tibet. He was given a Buddhist name in a, in a Tibetan temple, you know, like, and, and I was like, okay, well, all things being equal, as far as you know, having the light a scene, you being a, a Buddhist gives me the, med- you know, like now we can, now we can really hang, you know mm. what I mean? And that was why I thought he was perfect for this movie because I wanted, I needed people to understand that I was, you know, was really deeply thinking about Buddhism and, and this movie having a relationship to, like you say, karma and the cycles of life and what <clears throat> what does the precept mean all life is suffering and you know how would we would even talk about when we were designing our shots, we would say like, okay, this is 
how we shoot things that are objective. This is how things are subjective. And this is the Buddha head shot. We would talk mm. about that all the time. This is how Buddha would see the world. Really? So, yeah. So all of that was like a very, very important part of it. Uh, and, and so that's why, you know, when Dr. Braun starts taking out the Tibetan bowl and the Tibetan dagger and all that stuff, like that was really an important part of the, the metaphysics for me. Now, one, one last thing, because I feel like I'm, I'm going to get edged anywhere near it to giving away, giving away too much detail. But, but in, terms of, uh, in terms of the kind of demonic figures that we see, where, where were you, what was the conversation like with your VFX guys? And, and, yeah. and what, yeah. where, so, what, were you th- what were you thinking there? With, with how were you? Because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful uh, figure you've come up with. Yeah, well, there's a couple creatures, and to, to discuss them too much would really be a spoiler, but I will say that, um, so the creature designer hmm. is, a, is a guy named Martin Astles, who, yeah. uh, he lives in Los Angeles, and they have their effects shop here. He's a practical guy. He's a sculptor. Uh, he's British, originally, mm-hmm. I believe. He's got a British accent. And he had been working ever since uh, Event Horizon. Like, he was, he did crazy shit on Event Horizon. and wow. he's done all these. So he's got a... It's got an incredible, you know, resume and body of work. <clears throat> and I spoke to him probably a year before we started working on the movie. Like mm. he was the first extra, you know, creative person that came in that kind of start working on it with me. And um, we, in our initial meeting, he had pulled all of these references, different kinds of demons and, uh, you know, I looked at the pictures and some of the demons were like these really cool deconstructed cubist things I'd never seen before. And some of them were sort of the, you know, Buffy the Vampire, like you put five bumps on your forehead and get some fangs mm. kind of creatures. And I, I looked at those and I was like, dude, it's definitely not these. No bumps <laughs> on the forehead. And he was like, I'm so glad you said that, man. Like, I just put those in as a test because I don't like those either. And when people want those, I'm like, oh, OK. So um, I passed the demon test. And then uh, we started <clears throat> talking about that we wanted we, we, we wanted to use architecture and um, and like mm, architecture in sort of four dimensional space. Like if you look at the the creature, it has a relationship to like staircases and spires on a castle, and mm. um, you know, the, the, and and if you look at it from different angles, different things are like floating or hanging, sort of impossibly. Uh, so we, you know, we got really deep into that. There's another, there's another incredible design he created, but, um, uh, but I can't talk about it because it's just the very look of it is a is a spoiler. <laughs> okay, well, look, well, let's well let's let people leave people guessing then. So let's tell people when they can see your movie. It is going to be playing on Sunday the 25th and you're in the Cineworld Leicester Square Arrow video screen and the Cineworld uh, Horror Channel screen. So the main, the main event, as it were, 3.45 in the Arrow screen and 4.15 on the Horror Channel screen. Um, and that's on, on what day is that again? Sunday the 25th of August. That's on Sunday, yeah. And I will be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will be there to introduce the movie and to um, to be there for questions and and answers and it's fine. I'm the only person I know who says this, uh, but like, I don't even mind when people come out and say, this isn't a question, this is a comment. And then they just sort of talk about their feelings about the movie. I actually think that's cool. I think that's why we go out to see movies 
where the filmmakers are there so we can just interact with them. So bring your comments, bring your questions. And, uh, you know, I've found every single Q&A I've done with this movie, people have really, like, had strong emotional connections to it and and it's just it's been really beautiful so i love traveling with the movie and i love i was gonna i was gonna say yeah i mean i think that's the thing i i I hopefully people listening to this podcast could get the impression i mean if if i could spoil it which i'm obviously not going to i (laughs) would be i would be giving you my hypothesis and my feelings and responses to it because it's i felt there's a really it's a really accomplished piece of piece of cinema and but also it's at the heart of it a bloody good horror film at the same time so you you, you obviously make us feel, you make us think, and you scare the shit out of us. And yeah. <laughs> and we're guessing all the time. So there's all the elements you want, um, certainly for me anyway, because that's, 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 like that's, like that's like visceral bingo, isn't it? If you, if you, right. if you get <laughs> Visceral me in... bingo. Yeah, man, that's my, <laughs> that's my game, visceral bingo. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so it just gives me to say thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, if the listeners want to uh, hear more from me, find me on Twitter at Adam Egypt, because mm. I, I've been posting, and you should look at this too, if you haven't, uh, like I've been posting stuff about the process of the movie and like about how it was designed. And mm. I've, I've published like pieces from the style documents and lookbooks and stuff that I created. So that's all brilliant. It'd be really mm. interesting for filmmakers. Well, we'll put links in the show notes to that too. Great. Perfect. It was so awesome talking to you, man. This is great. My pleasure. uh, We'll see you soon. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.